Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I'm glad we could. I'm glad you're back. I'm still working my way through the faithfulness of the Messiah, Walt oh. Zorn. Yeah, I, I guess I'm already convinced. I don't need more convincing that it is the faithfulness. What I find interesting is, is that within the restoration movement, there's not many voices that are saying that. Yeah, you're probably more attuned. I guess I kind of lost interest <laughs> in finding uh, voices. But yeah, I just... I haven't been looking. I started toning people down or turning them off. I'm ashamed of at times now because of their, their staunch Christian nationalism. And probably Trumpism. And well, yes, and Trumpism, very, very much so. I Down at Johnson, I see some people that I feel like are doing some really good things down there as well. I still like the restoration plea. I think there's a place for people like us. But uh, as far as I can tell, if you're just counting noses, the thing has been co-opted by Christian nationalism, evangelicalism. I'm glad that you're optimistic. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm optimistic that there's some small seeds. Overall, it's discouraging. Part of it I have to say to myself, I mean, I was every much a part of that. Yeah, I was too. And then I have friends that I grew up or that I went to college with who I, I think they, they think I'm lost. I'm certain of it. Mm-hmm. And they think that I've gone liberal, but I've gone more conservative than uh, now. We'd have to define what that looks like. I have some small groups. I appreciate the Forging Plowshares group because I have a safe place of sorts. Apart from starting my own organization, you know, I, I know the guys, some of the guys at Lincoln, they have to be a little subdued to keep their jobs. Mm-hmm. Down at Johnson, their dean, he just got demoted. He got demoted because he put up something that you didn't have to be a supporter of Trump. And so, yeah, no, he was a part of an anti-Trump group. I think some donors, he kept his teaching job, but they, they demoted him. Yeah, yeah. And I presume that the difference between those two things is precisely what got Christ killed. In other words, he's dealing with people who have a kind of warrior God, nationalistic God in mind. This is partly what Bainton is doing in describing the kinds of war. And he's putting crusading onto the Old Testament, the notion of peace or pacifism, which he actually puts first, because every culture seems to have a kind of golden age that they look back to. And then just war comes next. His point is there's always been just war. I read a thing, I can't remember where I saw it, that, you know, when the Greek city-states were having a war, the casualty rate may have been about what that of a professional football team is today. And what we're finding out is that the sort of slaughter that we've especially seen in the 20th century, that with the Protestant Reformation, that for most of history, I realize there's all sorts of exceptions, there was always a limit on the killing. But what you get with the crusading idea that arises, Bainton is saying, in the Old Testament, is the notion this is God's war, and thus his statement that war 
is, you know, when you add God into the mixture, war becomes more deadly. That's clearly the, the case. And so the point I've done with the blogs I've written is to say that this contrast between, you know, with violence, it's a tension that's there that I don't think we should try to cover over. In other words, it's there in the Bible. I think part of the point of Revelation is to look that tension full in the face because there is a depiction of God. How do we understand who God is? We understand who God is in Christ. I presume that God, when he's depicted as violent, that that is in some way going to be corrected in Christ. And I presume that the difference between those two things is precisely what got Christ killed. In other words, he's dealing with people who have a kind of warrior God, nationalistic God in mind. He's preaching that who God is, the definitive statement is God is love. It's that difference that Jesus challenged to the nationalism of Israel, you know, the challenge to the temple, the challenge to the law. That's precisely what is going to be brought up at his trial. And so when we talk about the revelation of Christ, part of that revelation is specifically directed at the problem of violence. You know, we tend to just kind of play down his teaching on turning the other cheek, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, but of course, that is integral to who he is and his own taking up of the cross. I mean, the whole story is about he got killed and he got killed by the religious authorities, by the Roman and Jewish civil authorities. The very thing that he's challenging is this notion of violence. I think it is the notion of God as a warrior God that is undone through Christ. I think our tendency in reading the Bible is to try to flatten that out. We can finesse that understanding, but I think we shouldn't finesse it. In other words, I think we need to look that square in the face and say, this is precisely what is being challenged. I don't know if you guys read the article on uh, the cleansing of the temple. I don't know if you've seen the pictures by Rembrandt. Jesus has got this, it looks like a bullwhip, and there's this, I don't know if it's a little old lady or little old man, you know, he's beating him over the head with the whip. And of course, that notion that the cleansing of the temple was a moment of violence, that occurs only with the Constantinian shift, the Augustinian theological understanding in which they're going to begin to use the cleansing of the temple as a proof text for violently subduing the heretics, whether it was the Arians or the Donatists. You know, the Arians, okay, they were really heretics. The Donatists, all they were saying is, we shouldn't let the apostate right back into the church. You know, whatever we do with these texts, it is very interesting. Nobody thought to read them violently before the Constantinian ship. So I, I think that's significant. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are several threads going on here uh, by the time you get to Augustine. And there's one side of me that says to interpret the way that Augustine does becomes a very tough and troubling thing because everybody can say they're on the side of truth. So in World War II, you can drop a bomb on, on evil and the other side can shoot and kill and you know, and so Christian nations can can kill one another, everybody thinking that they have the higher, higher ground. What 
uh, Augustine, and then those who were to follow Calvin and different ones, they all became God in a sense, and they they began to determine who was worthy to live and who, who wasn't. So part of me says I have in the Old Testament, maybe I have less of a problem with genocide if God had certain people groups destroyed. I may have less of a problem with that because it's it's God that's making the decisions. But by the time you get to Augustine, um, it's Augustine making the decisions of, of who is who should live and who shouldn't. Good point. So I was reading some of the books that are referenced in the Bible that aren't actually like in the Bible, the book of Jasher. It's like there's an entire book and it just called the, the Wars of God. It, it, it's referenced in the book of Chronicles, but the book of, the book that it's talking about is called is literally called the book of the war of the Lord. It takes a certain level of cognitive dissidence on my part because you have to try to either explain away or try to reason away all the stuff that takes place in the Old Testament and then try to square that away with Christ. It just seems like you have to turn your cheek a lot of times and to say that uh well to see you speaking metaphorically here or i find myself struggling with it. i mean i wish i could believe that but it, it's when you have it, a whole book that the bible references it's just nothing but words that god does it's hard you know and and i do like what david just said right now with god you, we can at least understand that maybe there's a reason going on that we just fully do not understand um i'm in an atheist uh, i do an atheist podcast a podcast with an atheist we're talking about the problem of evil. And one of the things I said that really caught him off guard, that was just like, I said, I asked the guy, I said, what would you say if you saw me pushing a child in front of a car and the child gets hit and put into a coma? I said, would you, would you call that an evil act? And he's, he's like, absolutely. And I said, well, what if you saw from the other side that I was pushing him out of the way of a, of a diesel truck? By doing that actually saved his life. I did get him to concede that the reality is, is that maybe we just do not know reasons were that God is doing it so for me to, to sit and try to like justify it to someone else it takes cognitive dissidence on my part because I just truly don't know it's just guesswork it's interesting you use the phrase cognitive dissonance because that was what I entitled my whole explanation of this it is cognitive dissonance and I think our tendency when we have cognitive dissonance is to turn away from it or to try to flatten it out or to try to explain it. But I presume that actually the cognitive dissonance is not simply between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's actually there in the Old Testament that you have two portrayals. In some of the prophets, they're saying in the voice of God, I never asked for sacrifice. You have a portrayal of God that in fact seems to disown an understanding of God that is going to develop. You know, he never wanted to set up kings, and he says, well, this will be what happens when you establish a king. I'm presuming that there is a, a false portrayal of God. I may be going places you guys don't want to go with me, but I presume that even if you don't want to go with me, you would agree that the true portrayal of God is going to be found in Christ. And what we should not do is take our cognitive dissonance and flatten out who Jesus is by saying, oh, we can harmonize who Jesus is with a portrayal of God who seems to destroy. You know, he actually tells the Jewish soldiers at one point, if you find women who are sexually attractive, you can marry them. 
you can take them. You know, actually, they're taking them as sex slaves. There's portrayals of genocide. I just think we have to look at that and say, and this is my point with origin. This is not me, but this is what the early church fathers are saying. Origin, one of our earliest theologians, but Origen is going to say he's following Paul. How is Paul reading the Old Testament? He is not reading it the way that moderns are reading it. He's reading it with a theological understanding. He's going to say, well, this mountain represents this, and the idea is that he's reading it allegorically. And Origen then carries that program out. He gives us a commentary on a book like Joshua, and he says, point blank, these books about the war of God are, in fact, not worthy of being part of the canon of the Bible, apart from reading them through the interpretive lens of Christ. He's going to say they belong in the canon only because they then become subject to this theological or allegorical interpretation. What Paul does is interpret the Old Testament allegorically or theologically, and then we see that occurring with Origen, that he's going to read the book of Joshua and other books, that, and he reads it then through the lens of Christ. These books are not worthy of the canon of the Bible apart from understanding them through who Christ is. That is, that Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two, whoever they were, he's going to interpret Scripture and show that he is the center of that, that he's the interpretive key. Origen's point, and it seems Origen says, I'm just following Paul here, is that we're going to read these books as being uh, about Christ. God doesn't do evil. That's the interpretation that you're getting in the very first theologian. So whether you agree with Origen's allegorical approach or Paul's theological approach, what we can see there is they also had cognitive dissonance, and the way they're handling that cognitive dissonance is to say that it's through Christ as the interpretive key that we come to understand and filter the Old Testament. I I think a while back I would have thought you know, that's all hogwash, Paul. Um, I, I still struggle with some of the allegorical. I understand it, right? You know, you definitely see some of it uh, with, within Paul. But uh, I, was, I was listening on Sunday afternoon. I thought I'd go on a little hike. And I was listening to an, an interview of John Walton. Walton was describing the creation story. His main point was is science and Christianity don't have to be at odds with one another over the uh, the creation account, whether it was six days or 6,000 years, or it began to uh, describe that. And, and something that he said that I thought was real interesting, that I've always known this, but I thought, well, why don't I apply this more? Is he said, you have to understand like the Genesis account, you can't interpret it from a modern view. You have to understand, you know, what did the original, what was his purpose? What was he trying to uh, accomplish in that passage? You know, which is, goes back to the, the article you had us read, Paul, last yeah. week. I thought the interview and, and the article that you had us read were perfect because uh, what it does is we have to be careful not to have a flat reading of Scripture. 
that doesn't mean that everything that happens, the cross was allegorical or, or the resurrections just simply make you feel good, allegorical. We can't just do that. We have to really dig to, to what that, that means. And, you know, it makes me rethink. Obviously, I was, I was going through um, Joshua and Judges this, this last week. It is true. They didn't kill everybody. There were still a lot of people left in the land. So obviously they didn't, they didn't kill everybody. I'm not so sure I can jump on, on origin uh, per se. I think there's something else going on in those passages. Yeah. You know, and maybe in some sense, it, it's like the flood. The flood would be a genocide of sorts, right? God's just going to destroy all human life. Are there times when God has to act to make sure that the project's going to go in the right direction? By the time we get to Christ, all the acting has been done. Every, everything is completed. I think a place to start is how does Jesus read the Old Testament? And what he's going to say, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. If you go back to those passages, he's actually referring to, he's referring to the law, but one of the places, it's the food law. And Mark puts a note there and says, Jesus just did away with the food laws. He says, you know, you Jews, are you stupid? Don't you know that it's not what goes into a man, but what comes out of and so throughout there, Jesus is abrogating. He's, he's, I mean, he's saying, oh, you've heard it said in the law, but I'm saying to you. Jesus doesn't hesitate to correct it. He does the same thing with the Sabbath laws. You've heard that the Sabbath is on behalf of God. He says the Sabbath is for man. In other words, what he's doing in his own teaching, think of the woman taken in adultery. You know, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Oh, where is that in the Old Testament? So step one is Jesus is the author and interpreter of the correct understanding. We can talk about Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, because as the writer of Hebrews is going to put it, the law is a shadow. But now we have the direct icon, the direct representation of God, no longer through mediators. I think that in our kind of modernist, inerrant clinging to that, we are always trying to flatten it out and say, well, you know, Jesus, it wasn't that there was any problem with the law. Oh, no, I think Jesus says there's a problem here. And he is actually changing it up. Not that he's abolishing the law, but he is suspending certain aspects of it. You know, the blood of Abel cries out, but the, the blood of Christ is a better word from God, is what the writer of Hebrews puts it. With that understanding, first of all, we tend to take things in a hard, literal fashion. John Walton is giving us a reading. that That's the reason I liked his stuff. You know, what we've tended to do with a book like Genesis is to make it about material origins. His point is, oh, this isn't about material origins. This is about the purposes. It's about the telos of the universe. Yeah, it's about the ordering of. I think, yeah, um, yeah. Every creation account would try to show how order came about. And it was a temple dedication ceremony. And that's the way Walton is reading Genesis, that the temple here, of course, is a cosmic temple. And it is a cosmic temple in which he is putting primary emphasis on the seventh day, just like the writer of Hebrews does, who is going to talk about entering into the seventh day. 
as if all of human history is constituted in that seventh day that we are to enter in. And so the Jewish reading and the Jewish writing, I think, was of a theological, it was theological to begin with. You know, it's interesting that Walton, as an Old Testament scholar, does not appeal to John. You go through John, the gospel is a theological reading. It's showing how Jesus is then, you know, in the beginning, he's quoting Genesis, was the word and the word was with God. He's going through chapter one, you've got seven days. In each of those days, there's a significant event culminating in day seven, the wedding feast, a kind of allusion to the wedding feast of the lamb. And then he, there is the cleansing of the temple. That The point of the cleansing of the temple, the point of this is that John is giving us Christ as a theological key to the Old Testament. This may hit us as strange, but I think that this theological reading is the way, first of all, that the Jews understood their own Old Testament, and it was certainly not a strange reading that John was doing and that Paul is doing. But we have been in a modernist understanding. If you would ask, you know, well, where is the truth of Scripture? What we have is kind of the historical critical understanding. That is, oh, well, if you get at the historical truth of the Scripture, then you've gotten at the primary truth. And I think Walton's point is that it's not the historical, but it's the theological truth that is key. Last year or the year before I read uh, E.P. Sanders' book on Palestinian Judaism, I think prior to reading that, anytime I would read the New Testament, I'd lumped, you know, for the most part, all the Jews together. I mean, sure, there were some slight differences between Sadducees and Pharisees and, and stuff like that. But one of the things with reading Sanders' book is, is that there was a lot of different thoughts within Jewish teaching and within the Jewish community. And there was a lot of respect. They, they allowed a, a lot of freedom in, in those thoughts. So now we come to Jesus. And maybe, you know, what I'm hearing is, is Jesus says, Jesus is not scolding them always per se, well, you're wrong. I mean, there are sometimes he had to say, listen, you're just flat out wrong. But Jesus is saying, this is how we interpret these stories. This, this is what these, these stories are uh, looking like. So that even if we have a God who has people groups destroyed or whatever, that was never meant to be, this is the way it's going to be done. This is what, this is what I want. Or kind of like the divorce. It was never meant to be this way. You were never meant to have kings. Matter of fact, uh, you really were just simply to trust me and enjoy the fruit of the garden. That's what you were meant to yeah. do. Yeah. And so we got way off track on that. Then if you throw in the book of Job, I think there's a part of us, we have to throw our hands up in the air and say, this is too big for me. I, I don't fully understand it all. Because I think God could say, you know, where were you when, um, when I was laying out the boundary lines? Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's right. That the idea in Revelation is that it's, it evolves. I mean, that's what's being pictured, right? That we begin in the Old Testament, and there is an unfolding of who God is culminating in Christ. And actually, Jesus says this. He says, you know, that there is none greater than John. You know, he's referring to the history of the Jews. 
and John himself says, I'm not worthy to even untie his sandal. So that Jesus is saying John is the greatest, and of course now we're light years ahead of where John was. Evolutionary may be offensive to you, but the idea that it's an unfolding, and in this unfolding, part of the problem is that Jesus is so far ahead of where the Jews are that they're going to kill him in the name of the temple, in the name of their religion, thinking that they're doing God a favor. But of course, what we see is, no, he is the fulfillment. He is the truth of that Old Testament. He is the aletheia. If you understand aletheia, truth, the lathe is the uh, forgetting, and aletheia is not forgetting, that there is the sense that if you're reading this in the way of Rene Girard, that what is forgotten is the history of murder, the history of violence, the history of killing. And what Christ is exposing is something that is hinted at in the story of Cain and Abel, in the story of Joseph and his brothers, in the story of you know Solomon's wisdom, where he's going to cut the theoretically the baby, or the, the story surrounding David. But there is a final and full revelation in Christ. You know, what is the reaction? It's to kill him. I don't think that's a mistake. I think the violence, in other words, I think the violence that is hidden since the foundation of the world, that that truth is now revealed in Christ. And his death then is an uncovering of a truth that had never been uncovered before. And so to read that the Old Testament as if it contains its own, has its own integrity, I think is a misunderstanding. The Old Testament only has integrity as it is completed, fulfilled, made truthful in Christ. If there is no Christ and all we have is the Old Testament story, then all we have is one of many destructive type gods in the world. Another warrior god. Another warrior god, yeah. You know, I think part of this is to say, what, what's wrong with people? Well, one thing is we're violent, that we kill. And the, the way that we hide killing under all sorts of things. Well, in religious myth, we need to sacrifice to the gods in order to appease them. Strangely, that's precisely what we've done with divine satisfaction and penal substitution, that Christ just becomes one more sacrifice. Or we kill in the modern sense because of the mythology of the nation state. And of course, the idea is the nation in some way is the enduring reality that we would lay down our lives for, and it gives us freedom the American way, gives us all the things that Christ would have normally, that we would attribute to Christ. We can see that happening in World War One, World War Two, that the killing is going to be Christianized quite blatantly on the tombs of World War One soldiers. They're going to write the phrase, no greater love is there than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. And so dying in war, in which you're actually going out killing people and hoping to come home is equated with the dying of Christ. It is opened up with an Augustinian shift, but it is completed with the Protestant Reformation. That it's actually with the Protestant Reformation that I think the Constantinian shift is completed. 
in the, you know, it was always the case, and this is Bainton's point, that throughout church history, peace or nonviolence was normative. Even princes or soldiers would have to go and receive penance. They'd have to do penance. And even in the 1300s, you have monasteries filling up with former knights who are doing, they're doing penance for their guilt. But it's only with the Protestant Reformation that you're going to have just war included in the creeds. All three creeds, the Anglican Creed, the Lutheran Creed, uh, Augsburg Confession, all three Protestant groups are going to do something that had never occurred in the history of Christianity. And that is that violence is going to be incorporated into the creeds so that literally a soldier on the order of a businessman or a priest can do his work and glorify God through his, you know, energetic, whatever it is, you know, killing, so that we have a kind of final ending of the notion that nonviolence is normative. Constantinianism opened that up, but it was completed with the Protestant Reformation. I mean, obviously, the rest of that story is that the peace churches arise at the same time as the, you know, the the Radical Reformation is the same time as the Protestant Reformation. I think we have to locate ourselves and realize we live in a very strange time, historically, in which the Bible is being interpreted in a way that it was not interpreted for most all of human history for you know the 15 first 1500 years of christianity and this violent interpretation you know the reason we're having to struggle with oh the passage of the cleansing of the temple of the two swords nobody whatever they did with those whether the, you know origin was reading the cleansing of the temple allegorically also others were you know but nobody was reading those for the first 300 years as being violent Now, a violent interpretation has become normative. But that's strange even in the, I mean, it developed in the history of Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy too, but it culminates in the, the Protestant Reformation. Actually, violence becomes Christianized. All the elements of war become Christianized. The nation state is going to serve in place of the church. You know, this was originally there in the Constantinian shift that the emperor is the bishop of bishops, which strangely enough is prior to his baptism, prior to his becoming a Christian, so that the sword is going to be utilized by the state on behalf of the church. That is completed with the, you know, what Luther is doing is separating church and state and making each an integral realm uh, unto itself. So that now this, the prince or the head of state does not answer to the church in any way. It opens up what we get in the modern period in which I think the elements of Christianity are just put into nationalism. I mean, that's it's extreme here in this country. But it is, I think, a, a byproduct of the Protestant Reformation And so the opening to a kind of total war, total destruction, that you obliterate the enemy on the order of a crusade, strangely enough, that has become normative for the nation state. I have a a question, Paul. 
and the the wrestling match and, and i think i agree with it i first heard it from my friend john nugent and he's the one that kind of started pointing me towards yoder and harwas and stuff like that harwas was scolding the methodist leaders um, not because they were promoting a gospel of nonviolence, but because who they were focusing it on was a waste of time is kind of what i got out of that ultimately what the government does, what nation states do, is not so much a concern of the church as much as that the church begins to live out this new community, this this new way of life, which I think I agree with 100%. Um, there's always the struggling match. Is, is the prophetic voice simply just for the church? Or, you know, at times do we need to let world leaders know that they're evil? I feel like if there's a confusion within the church, this is it. Because the church, for the most part, this is where Christian nationalism comes in. The church, for the most part, is sold out to, we have to make our country more Christian. That's a lie from Satan. So yeah. I don't. The, uh, the church needs to be the church, is Harris's point. He kind of says that over and over in various ways that the first obligation of Christians is to be Christian. And of course, that's what we're missing out on, that the church is an ethic, that the church is the abolition of war, that the peace of Christ has ab abolished. You know, that's uh, if you equate war, war and sin, and sin and war, of course, which we're not used to doing, we're not used to hearing that. But my point is, oh, it's the same struggle, it's the same war within and war without that is abolished in Christ. You can do an anatomy of war and an anatomy of the individual's sin. It's the same struggle. It's the struggle in which you would reify. You know, think of the memorial of the, the tomb, that you take the tomb, and this is actually very similar to what Jesus says, that you, you know, memorialize the prophets, and in memorializing them, you agree with those who killed them. It's a very subtle thing, because what he's saying is that in the reifying of death, in making, in memorializing death, there is a sense that we justify the death. Isn't that what we do with soldiers when we memorial, you know, we have the tomb of the soldier, and we write scripture on it, you know, that no greater love is there than this. It takes on the image of something like an idol, in that what an idol is, it's a kind of reified nothing. It's taking death or nothingness and making it an absolute something. That's what's, I think, happening in the, the war memorials and in the enshrining kind of, of the soldier laying down his life. But so too then, what is personal sin? That is that the first casualty of war is truth. Well, why is that? Because once you invest life in war, nobody's going to turn around and say, whoops, that was a mistake. That, that had actually never happened in this country until the Vietnam War. And somebody did say, well, that was a futility. Mm -hmm. But actually, you could say, you know, the people who fight wars will always tell you the futility behind it. Same thing true with idolatry. What creates the reality of the idol are the sacrifices that you give to the idol. Right, right. You invest life in it. But isn't that true of all sin, that we invest right. our life 
you know, whatever it is in obtaining of something or whatever it is that we're into, whether it's an addiction, obtaining, whether it's sex, you know, whatever that we, you know, Paul says, well, the stomach is for food and food for the stomach. Well, that could be an eternal circulating system of signs in which you just, you know, you eat, eliminate, and you eat, and that becomes a kind of end in and of itself. He's actually talking about human sexuality there too, that we can mystify sexuality so that it becomes a kind of end in and of itself. But his point is the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. So that I think that personal sin and the, the sin that we encounter in war is the same structure. So that when we talk about Christ defeating sin and death, I think it's inclusive of the nationalism. It's inclusive of war. And so this is good, brings us back to Harawas when he's talking about the church. The church is a community of people that live out of the resource of the peace of Christ. It, it, it is a method. It's a value system. And so what is a brave person? What is someone with honor and dignity and valor? Well, it's someone who can kill when they need to. You know, that what is life? Well, every man needs a good woman and needs to kill a bad man. Oh, there's your whole value system right there. Sex and death as a kind of end in and of itself. You know, this is what Paul is talking about. In the church, we're actually, we're supposed to be challenging that value system and overturning it. But as long as we're tied into a kind of nationalism, what you're going to hear at the communion table on Sunday morning, you know, maybe during Veterans Week or Fourth of July, they're going to equate the freedom of Christ and the freedom that we are ga that is gained in war, and they're going to equate the sacrifice of soldiers with the sacrifice of Christ. I think the sacrifice of Christ abolishes war, and we've not understood that. You asked Dave, well, do we do we speak out to leaders? And you know, this was Dorothy Day said, well, uh, in her opinion, if the United States it could only survive by fighting wars, then we should liquidate the United States. That's kind of a secular blasphemy. You know, if you want to get people ready to kill you, start talking like that, because what you're doing is oh. tread, treading on their religion. Paul, have you ever read 1984? They call it double speak, but I mean, you could just as easily refer to it as um, cognitive dissidence. They have these three tenets of their socialist state where they're trying to totally dominate people. So one of the tenets is that freedom is slavery, war is peace. I think like ig ignorance is strength. Wind up saying in there, they wind up finding out that this like resistance that's supposedly out there is really just them disguised as like creating an enemy for themselves to like everyone to unite against, right? What they wind up saying in there is that the purpose that war serves is like a means for for control over the people and that you could essentially, you wouldn't even need to engage in a war. What you would need to do is every so often just gather up a bunch of ex excess uh, of the place and just drop a bunch of bombs on that rather than people because they're trying to build up this like scarcity scarcity one and then two just have a fear because whenever you have fear in people's minds they're easier to manipulate to get a better understanding of this like the psychology of war to read that and like Lao Tzu the art of war 
you know, and understand like why the, the psychology of people who, who want to engage in violence. Uh, I think it's very important for us to understand from a psychological level as well. I think that's exactly what it, there's a little church uh, that uh, north of Moberly here, and it's got a flag and then the cross in the middle of the flag. And the name of the church is Freedom Baptist Church. In other words, the freedom of the flag and the freedom of the cross are equated. If you go to the United States Air Force Academy in uh, Colorado, there is a cross, what seems to be a cross at the front of the church. But as you come close to it, you realize, oh, it's not a cross, it's a sword. What they're saying, of course, is, oh, the sword is a cross and the cross is a sword. The cross that the soldier bears is the sword. In other words, it's exactly what you're describing. Everything is turned inside out, that the language of Christianity is deployed, but none of it means the same thing. It's all, you know, redemption, freedom. Even the word love becomes a kind of meaningless word because you kill those you love in a just war. This was actually, you know, Augustine and even in the Inquisition. You're going to torture people. You're just torturing their bodies, but of course you're saving their souls. You just obliterated Christianity through that kind of dualism. So, yeah, no, I, I think that the doublespeak gets at it. And so I, uh, to the degree that war gives us our meaning. If you study U.S. history without the war, what would there be left to study? Very little. It's just a, a series of wars. I do the podcast with the atheist guys, and I'm actually far more secular than they are because I believe the best way for Christianity to flourish and to spread and would be some good old-fashioned persecution and if you take a look at the, the book of Acts, they wind up damaging the local economy on multiple times. You know, they have such a powerful testament that people are stopped buying idols. Modern equivalent is in the 1907 Pyeongchang uh, revival in South, where the gospel broke out in, in the Koreas. You just had people who just stopped going to the bars. You know, they just started naturally closing down without the government needing to, to ban. Uh, Christians actually did that. You wouldn't need to start looking to the government to do this or that or to shove religion down people's throats. Because when you do that, I could tell you as ministers' kids, whenever you actually do that, it just turns people off to the gospel. And especially when people see the Christian nationalism and the justification of the wars and believe that that turns people off to Christ and Christianity. I saw somebody make an argument the other day. They were definitely more nationalistic. Christian nationalistic in their views, and they felt like the reason we want a godly country is because it's more fertile ground for the gospel. I've decided not to respond to a lot of people because it just doesn't go anywhere, but I thought to myself, that's really not true. In the Western world, the church continues to decline, and then within the Western world, we have more freedoms than Mm -hmm. any other place in the world. But the, the church is growing in Africa, it's growing in South America. It's growing in, in Asia. It's growing in places where there are hostile environments. So if you want the most fertile ground, right. um, throw in a dictatorship, throw in communism. Now, I, I'm not buying for that because I, I think the, the ultimate problem is not capitalism or socialism or even communism. I think the problem is uh, nobody knows w- without Christ, <laughs> without a, a true understanding of Christ, 
we don't know how to use power and, and we abuse it. Yeah, the pursuit of power means that you're controlled by power. The pursuit of wealth means you're controlled by wealth. The pursuit of you know getting control in and in fact is a kind of out of controlness. And I think the idea is that in Christ that we, we can claim a peace that is already there for us. That in all of these systems, what's always being presented is, well, we've got this struggle and we need to enter into the struggle and defeat you know, the enemy, whatever the other is. And we need to subdue them and keep them under control. Well, that's not Christianity because the idea is that principalities and powers, and I think it's precisely this that we're talking about, have been defeated. Are you all familiar with the family the National Prayer Breakfast. Yeah, I saw the... Um, oh, yeah, on Netflix. Yeah, I think it is a perfect assist of what you were describing. They use all the religious language. I think, it, you know, they use Jesus, but, of course, it's all emptied of meaning. They even have their own Bible, and they do prayer. But, of course, prayer becomes a kind of such a vague thing. Their point is to gain power. They want to be in places of power and influence. And so what you do with a, you know, you've emptied Christianity out of any meaning in order to gain power. They've been successful. Every president, you know, what is it, since Eisenhower has come to the national prayer breakfast. But it, it is a kind of picture of that nationalistic Christianity. That documentary is one of the most disturbing things I, I think I've ever seen. Because my cousin is, he's a theologian, and he's a, he's a Trumpster. He knows the Bible way better than me, but he's a Trumpster. I recommended that to him. He's on this ridiculous impression that the, the right wing like accurately represents Jesus Christ. But that movie, I mean, one of the things that they just, they said, like, they didn't care about the people at the bottom. They were primarily just focused on the people at the top. If you take a look at the way that Jesus talked about he says when you throw the luncheons like don't just go invite the people all the top who could ret return basically fa favor or the opportunity back to you but he says to um to invite the lowly people the lame or whatever is that they they just essentially they didn't care about the people at the bottom they had pushed one of the dictators to like welfare funding to the people for what reason i i really i, I can't even remember what convoluted yeah, reason yeah. they use yeah it's anti-union it's really it's screwing poor people it's that's this that is a disturbing documentary uh well hopefully um i'll be uh feeling okay by the time we meet next week oh you're getting a shot yeah i get my shot on monday so oh, yeah, you'll be recovered i it took it took me out yesterday but I'm feeling, I don't feel it today. So. All right. Well, I'm preaching a sermon series right now that the church needs, needs a new narrative. Our old one sucks. I didn't use that word, but that's what it is. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah. All right. Let me know how it goes. Okay, I will. Talk All to right, you later. Dave. See you next week. All right. I'll see you guys. You guys have a great week. Okay. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.com. 
www.ghostdiaries.org.